Reformation over Revival podcast. We're continuing our Romans study. I want to stop you really quick before you do this one. I actually am connecting Romans 7 and 8 together as one. Um, And so I want you to go back and read or go ahead and read Romans 8 if you haven't read that yet before you listen to this episode because I'm going to connect 7 and 8 in some things. So go ahead and do that. If you've already done that, then join us for today's episode. Let's get going. All right, so I'm excited to uh, get into today's reading and kind of discussion on uh, Romans 7 and 8. And so I just want to do two kind of like some overview and then I want to connect a couple of things that I think are important when it comes to us actually living Christian lives. Um, I'm not as concerned with having knowledge without application and what it means for us. And so I'm not really looking as much at, um, you know, I guess we could get really deep into like things that maybe wouldn't change the way that we live And what I'm really interested in is understanding things in a way that it then impacts the way that we live. And so that's what I want to get into today. And I really think that's why I coupled seven and eight together, because there are some points made in seven, not by the text, but by people concerning the text, um, that seven is usually by people who don't really want to live for Jesus, but still want to call themselves Christians. Um, verse seven, chapter seven is usually used to, um, make this, the sin life of the quote unquote Christian. Okay. And so I want to, um, disprove and dispel some of that stuff today just by what the Bible itself actually says. And, um, but I do want to give these two perspectives. So we understand if you just read seven, you basically understand that, um, what seven is doing is, it seems in itself that it's almost contradicting um, six, that six is telling me I'm freed from sin. I don't have to sin anymore. Jesus died once for all. I'm no longer trapped in those things. Um, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm not bound up by that anymore. Uh, I don't, I don't have to be this vile person that I find that I am on the inside when I'm not giving myself to the Lord when I'm not pursuing Christ, when I'm not keeping him ever before my thoughts and my life, my focus. And we, we see then like in seven, we're like, okay, Paul. Um, so what would, did you mean in six that now you're talking about the things you want to do, you can't do and the things that you don't want to do, you keep doing because that doesn't really seem to go with six. It seems to go with my experience, but it doesn't really go with chapter six. And this is where people tend to get off base is that we tend to have this, um, you know, I think the, I might've said this in the last episode, I can't remember, but you know, uh, 
the theological way to say it is, or I don't even know if that's the right word. The brainy way to say it is that we tend to have um, experiential theology and not theological experience. And the normal person way to say that is that what we do is we tend to live our life and experience things on a daily basis. And then we read the Bible based off of what we experience every day instead of reading the Bible and then taking what the Bible says as fact and then living in a way that we experience in our life what the Bible says instead of trying to read our experiences into the Bible. And Romans chapter 7 is where a lot of people read their experiences into the Bible because normally we just read the Bible a chapter at a time or a verse at a time or a verse here and a verse there. And that's not how this was written. I said that in the beginning, I think. This was not written in chapter 1, chapter 2, verse 1. It wasn't written that way. It was written as one massive letter. And so... The, the way we really get the context for this is for looking at the entirety of this letter and this picture as one massive thing. Um, there are different sections, different things that are addressed, but especially Romans 6, 7, and 8, in my opinion, there are people who may have a different opinion. In my opinion, looking at those things, we get a large-scale picture of the Christian walk and the reality of the Christian life. Not this person who daily is just struggling along with the same old sin, same old sin, because what tends to happen, I think in modern Christianity, and I say modern Christianity, not necessarily meaning people who follow in the way of Jesus, but meaning the massive picture of the large scale Christian um, religion that is the religion of our country. Um, not necessarily those who follow in the way of Jesus, but we tend to have Christians who um, want to make it okay to continue to struggle daily in sin, and their daily focus becomes, uh, or, or let me say this, their life focus becomes making allowances for their sins while also in the reverse, complaining about how there's no way God would ever uh, require us to live a righteous and holy life because it's impossible. And the only reason they're saying it's impossible is because they're living a life where it's impossible, not because God can't do it through them, but because of the way that they live and the way that they believe, or I should say the way that they don't believe, it literally is impossible, the life that they're living. It's not impossible if you live a scriptural life biblical life as unto the Lord, it is impossible if you live a conformed worldly life as unto yourself. So we have to keep those things in perspective. So now um, when Paul gets into, and he really gets into it in verse seven, um, going starting in seven and then really going on through, um, but he gets into talking about verbiage about how the law is what awakened sin in him and that it's because of the law that he even knew what sin is. And that's where he finds this other law at work in him, that the good that he wants to do, you know, he can't do. And then he just finds these different and he's really starts to like, it sounds like Paul is just explaining the struggle that we all have every day. And there's two perspectives on this um, that I have found to be helpful um, I don't know which one I agree with. Uh, I'm open to both. I don't, 
I can't say either one of them is wrong. I know one of them is more widely accepted and one of them is quote unquote newer, even though it's like seven or eight, maybe even more than that years old. Um, but when it comes to like theology and uh, receiving something as truth, it tends to take a while, rightly so, for people to pick up on newer ideas. Um, even though it may not necessarily be a new idea in the grand scheme of the church, as far as like, you know, for a couple of thousand years, it is a newer idea um, in the grand scheme of like our generation and the ones most closely related to us. So these two perspectives, I just want to give you a little overview um, on chapter seven. There's one that is widely accepted um, by theologians. Now, again, not all of them, but it is more widely accepted. And it's this, it's that in chapter seven, Paul is describing his pre-Damascus, pre-Christ self. So he is explaining what the Paul who lived under only the law, not under grace, not under the new covenant. He is explaining what he experienced in his life. And the reason why we know that this would have to have been a pre-Jesus um, Paul, so I guess Saul, as you might would say, if you've read uh, Acts, is because then when you go right into Romans 8, he starts out with, there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit for the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. So he undoes all of the problems that he lays out in seven. He undoes them in the first couple of verses in eight. That's what we don't want to talk about because then, then I have to explain why I'm still living in the bondage that Paul talks about so freely in seven. And I just identify it with so freely, but then Paul talks about the freedom that now comes in eight. And I'm like, Oh, well, I don't experience that. So let's just read seven. Let's not talk about eight, but we can't do that because it's all one thing. And so one perspective is that in seven, Paul is talking about his pre-Christ self. And like in chapter eight would be where he basically, you can imagine Paul riding on his donkey or his horse or whatever he's riding on, on the road to Damascus. And he gets knocked off of his horse. And, you know, he has this encounter with Jesus. He meets the Jesus that he knows to be um, now, not before. So he's persecuting uh, the church. He's killing those who claim the way of Jesus. And then he meets Jesus on the road and something that it's important. I was talking to someone about this today and um, they just mentioned this and I've, I've heard this a couple of times before and I, I just, I really love this perspective because I think this is a very non-American church perspective, but I think it's a very scriptural and biblical perspective is that Paul did not view his um, meeting Jesus and his submission to Jesus as Paul converting from Judaism to Christianity. He didn't view it as that. Paul viewed it as, I am a Jew, and now I'm just admitting that Jesus is the Messiah, which means that Jesus is the fulfillment of what I've been waiting for as a Jew. So now I can continue to be a Jew submitting to Jesus 
and I am being the purest form of what I've always uh, uh, been driven to be. So the thing that I've always strived to be, which is a good Jew, which is you know the best Jew in, in Paul's opinion, I'm sure up to that point, it, a very uh, zealous Jew, he's now just like, man, Jesus is the fulfillment of that. So if I want to be the best Jew I can be, I have to be the best follower of Jesus that I can be. And I think that's what we really see um, in Paul is that it's not that Paul, like we say the conversion of Paul and a lot of um, more high church, uh, more traditional uh quote unquote Christian traditions, they celebrate the conversion of Paul as a holiday. And I'm not saying that that's a bad thing. That's cool to me. But the conversion of Paul is not like what we think of when we think of conversion. Uh, if when we think of the conversion of somebody, we think like, oh, that person is a Muslim or that person is a Jehovah's Witness or that person is a Buddhist and then they become a Christian. And for Paul, it just wasn't seen that way. And for early church Christian or early church Jews who became Christians or who became followers of the way of Jesus, it was not seen that way. And so if we look at Paul's wording here, he, he you can kind of see coming from seven into eight, how he would have had this, like, this is my pre-Damascus experience. And then boom, into eight, he says, but now there's no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. And so he's leading us on that same road that he went down of like, listen, this is what I find. It's death. It's horrible. The things I want to do, I can't do the things I don't want to do. I keep on doing. And then boom, I meet Jesus and everything changes that's the beauty of this message, not see our selfish flesh that's been conformed to this um, instant gratification, self-gratification, evil world around us. We want that. We want seven. See, like for our flesh, for our desires, for our selfishness, seven is liberating because it means, man, Paul struggled. I can't tell you how many pastors I've heard say, even in private conversation, like I've had people uh, when I was growing up in counseling to me, dealing with my sin, trying to wrestle as a teenager with, with, I know I shouldn't be doing this. I know that Jesus offers me a way out, but I'm struggling to find that way out. How does, how do I, how do I live that? I've literally had pastors tell me, Listen, man, Paul even had these things he struggled with. Even Paul said the things he wanted to do, he couldn't do. This is just part of humanity. But then they never read eight to me. They never went, and I never read it for myself either, which is my fault. But they never went to eight and said, listen, man, I know you're struggling with this. And seven tells you what you're struggling with. But eight, listen, see, eight, you've been set free from the law of sin and death. They didn't do that. Nobody does that because it's way easier for me and my flesh to live in this sinful carnal man that I'm in and please myself and give myself everything that I want. If, if Paul still struggled, then heck, I can still struggle. But for my spirit that needs to be formed into the likeness of Christ daily, continually keeping him ever before my eyes, eight is liberation. Because there's therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, who do not walk according to the flesh, but walk according to the spirit. Now, if I'm living that life, guess what? I'm free. I'm free from sin and death. I don't have to live that life anymore. I don't have to continue to do those things. 
And now I want to clarify, being free from the law of sin and death doesn't mean I'm free, but I can still sin and then I just won't die. It means I'm free from the part of me that would normally continue in those things, but because of Jesus has been delivered. That is the message of this. So then the second perspective, I kind of got off on a rant there, sorry, but it's very important. But the second perspective on... um. And if you want to look up more on on that first perspective I gave you, um, men like N.T. Wright, um, that's kind of the side that they uh, view um, chapter 7 through in the letter N, the letter T, last name Wright. Um, he's a theologian. I highly recommend him. I enjoy um, what he has to say, his writings and his teachings. Um, he's controversial to some people, so depending on what circle you walk in, you may just cut the podcast off right now when I say that I like him. Um but uh, I think that he has a lot of good things to say, um, and so I, I do enjoy listening to him. Also, the second perspective um, is this, that in chapter 7, Paul is using a communication tool called impersonation, um, and that in chapter 7, he is impersonating Adam, um, meaning Adam from the creation story from Genesis, and there is some, what some theologians refer to as an Adamic line, meaning that there are references to Adam throughout Romans. Um, and so there's a theologian named Ben Witherington who has this perspective that I'm about to tell you about, where Paul is using seven, and let's say if you have a pastor or your teacher, somebody who's teaching you the Bible or just somebody in conversation. And I'm quoting someone else and I'm quoting someone else in a manner that I want you to know that I'm quoting someone else or I'm mimicking someone else or I'm in a way making fun of someone else, but I'm not, I'm not going to say, okay, I'm going to enter into this character. Now I, I would, I might would change my voice and I might would say, you know, talk in a deeper tone or talk in a high pitch voice or do something like that to let you know I'm impersonating this person. Uh, In the delivery of this, um, the insinuation by people who believe in this second viewpoint is that it would have been, you know, switching into this other tone. I'm impersonating Adam here, and I'm saying that, you know, um, is the law sin? Certainly not. On the contrary, I would not have even known sin except through the law. For I would not have known covetousness unless the law had said, you shall not covet. And so then he kind of goes into that. And what he's saying is that he's impersonating Adam there because he's showing that in Adam, because you know the Bible calls Jesus the last Adam, meaning that everything that came through Adam's sin was ended with Jesus, and it calls Jesus the second man, which means that there was a continuation of humanity after Jesus, because Jesus set the example of what it actually means to be human, to actually be in the image of God. Jesus set that um, that that image for us, and so. Those are kind of two perspectives on seven that may kind of help you understand. Again, I'm not going to side with one or the other, but those are two perspectives that both help me when I read. Um, and you will find people who agree and disagree with both. And so um, those have just shed some light on understanding the road of seven leading into eight for me. Now, a couple of things I want to draw some um, lines 
to connecting is if we look at um, 721, so Romans 7, verse 21, we see that Paul says this, I find then a law that evil is present with me, the one who wills to do good. And now we would apply that to our normal Christian life and say, man, I just, that's so true. That's so right. But something we have to think about in eight in, in 721 is that right after 721, we have eight two, which I just read a while ago, which says for the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. So even though you might would say, guess what? I find that evil's present with me. The one who wills to do good. It doesn't matter if evil's present with you because guess what? The law of spirit, the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made you free from the law of sin and death. So you don't have the excuse. Do you see what I'm saying? He says in seven something that he undoes with the reality of Jesus in eight. So he gives you the reality of the flesh. Then he gives you the reality of the spirit. And he lets you know that the reality of the flesh is nothing. Go back to Romans six. You have died with Christ. So now those parts of you that, you know, whatever used to hold you down, they're irrelevant because they've been murdered. They are dead. They are gone in Jesus name. And so now the law of spirit of life in Christ has now set you free from those things that used to bind you down. We have to apply our faith to that. We have to apply our faith to see those things walked out. Now, another one is 725. So 725 says, I thank God through Christ Jesus, our Lord. So then with the mind, I myself serve the law of God, but with the flesh, the law of sin, we would use 25 to go, man, me too. In my brain, I serve the Lord, but in my flesh, I keep on sinning. What's up with that? So then we need to go from there to eight, one, let's just read one through four, where he says, therefore, there is now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit for the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death for what the law could not do. And that it was weak through the flesh. God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh on the account of sin. He condemned sin in the flesh that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Let's just go into verse five for those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the spirit, the things of the spirit for, so he's drawing this parallel. Well, it's like used to used to with my mind, I would serve the law of God, but with the flesh, the law of sin. Now he's saying, but now in Christ, if I put my mind on the spirit, I'll walk in the spirit. But if I put my mind on the flesh, I'll walk in the flesh. Whereas used to under the law, under the old covenant, there was this paradigm, this, this oddity of, I can put my mind on God, but my flesh still seems to do the opposite. Now under Christ, See, we have it all backwards. We like to act like that now because of the new covenant, it's way easier to sin because, you know, well, there's grace. Well, the reality of it is now under the new covenant, you have no excuse to sin because you've been set free from the law of sin and death. You now should be walking not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. And so it's, we have this freedom in Jesus that we've been delivered from sin. We don't have to walk in sin anymore. 
And so uh, Romans 8, 5 through 8, I love because it says, and this is part of what I just read, for those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the spirit, the things of the spirit. For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Because the carnal mind is the enemy of God or enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, nor indeed can be. So then, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. So it gives you this beautiful picture of how if we will set our minds on Jesus, I've started really paying attention to and spending time uh, with the spiritual disciplines and implementing them in my life. And one of the first things that I do every morning now is I go uh, to a room by myself in our house and I sit for 10 minutes and I just spend time with the Lord, just thinking about the Lord and nothing else. Now that might sound absolutely crazy to you and I'm sorry if it does, you should try it. And that helps me just get my mind right and focused on him so that as I go about everything, because I don't know if you know this or not, you may be experiencing this through this study. You can sit down and read the Bible and your brain can be as far away from that thing as possible. You can sit down and you can you know, do anything and your brain can be as far away from Jesus. You can sit down to pray and you can be thinking about Netflix or you can be thinking about bills or you can be thinking about whatever. And the beauty of being able to focus your mind on him and set your, your mind on the things of the spirit is that when we set our mind on the things of the spirit, then we walk according to the spirit. And so if we want to live a life that looks like Jesus, we have to set our mind on Jesus. But oftentimes our minds are set on our failures. They're set on our shortcomings. They're set on how much we don't want to do this. We don't want to sin. We don't want to mess up. Well, guess what? If all I'm thinking about is how much I don't want to sin, what's my mind fixed on? Sin. What am I going to do? Sin. But if I'm thinking about him and I'm thinking about his presence in my life and how he's here with me through everything that I'm doing and I can do everything as unto him, then there becomes a shift in my life and the way that I live where Jesus becomes central to my day and central to my focus. And it's this really beautiful thing that begins to happen in me where I really begin to be formed into the image of Jesus because he's what I'm fixing my mind on. He's what I'm fixing my eyes on. Um, and it's, it's just a very beautiful thing. Um, verses nine through 17, but you are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. If indeed the spirit of God dwells in you. Now, if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, he's not his. And if Christ is in you, then the body is dead because of sin, but the spirit is life because of righteousness. But if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Therefore, brethren, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. Like you don't owe the flesh anything. That's what verse 12 means. You don't owe it anything. Quit giving it credit. You don't owe it anything. Don't live according to it. For if you live according to the flesh, you'll die. But if by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified together. This is the reality 
of the spirit-filled life. This is the reality of walking in this, living in this. I don't have to gratify my flesh. I don't owe my flesh anything. I'm now a child of God. I've now been adopted in, and I'm going to be looking at, spending time with, and fixing my eyes on my Father. I'm going to be crying out to Him as deep calls unto deep. I'm going to be suffering with Him so I can live with Him. And I love where verse 18 comes in where it says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. There is glory that will be revealed in us if we suffer through the discomfort. And that discomfort doesn't necessarily just mean, I think I might have already said this, your back pain. It means suffering through the things in this world that you might would rather do something else but instead you decide to be with the Lord. And what happens is because see, there's this oddity in Christian living where we can do the right thing and still not want to do the right thing. And people around us will go, man, you did the right thing. And you'll go, yeah, I did, but man, I didn't want to. And it's like, does God really get glory in that? Well, maybe, but does he get all the glory? No, probably not. And so the question that we have to ask is, am I living a life where daily I'm being transformed into someone who not only does what is right, but desires first to do what is right? And now in this, we have these interesting um, points that can be made about spiritual warfare and things like that. Like if we look at eight, five through eight again, I'm not going to read it, but you can look at it again and just see what he's talking about with the mind and the value of the mind being fixed on Christ. And there's this, there's this idea that really came about, um, in the early, early years of the church. Um, and by one of the men who was, uh, a monk, a desert father, I can't remember his name exactly right now. Um, but anyways, he, um, he, he taught a lot and wrote a lot on um, spiritual warfare, what we would call spiritual warfare, which is not really a biblical term, but it's a term that we use and we know what it means. So it's okay um, to use it in this context. But um, he kind of wrote these uh, a, a lot on spiritual warfare and the attacks of the enemy and temptation and fasting and things like that. And one of the main points, and this was really, this was really an old thought process in the church that I don't know why it's gone away. I don't know why we've made spiritual warfare this big. Like every time we get a stomach bug or every time we get a cold or every time we stub our toe, we, well, the devil's after me. And it's like, I don't, I don't know that actually, maybe not. Maybe when the devil's after you, maybe when the enemy's tempting you is in your brain, when you're choosing to think incorrectly about things that the word would have you think otherwise, or when you're thinking incorrectly about things, when, when Christ in you would not think that way about that thing. Maybe that's where you're losing. Maybe it's not because you're throwing up. Maybe it's because you're sick in your head. And so we believe these lies and the enemy lies to us and he comes in and he begins to, to speak contrary to the truth and into our brains and into our minds, and into our hearts. And what we really have a responsibility to do if we're going to walk and live like Jesus and pursue him in all things is we have a responsibility to tell the enemy, Hey, listen, shut your mouth right? It's just like I, I said about Romans chapter six, when we want to combat the enemy 
And we have to believe that we have been crucified. The enemy comes in and says, hey, listen, man, that flesh is still alive. Look at Romans 7. It says it's still alive. And you go, you know what? That's a lie. That's not what the Bible says. There's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because I don't walk according to the flesh, enemy. I walk according to the spirit. And I've been set free from the law of sin and death because of the law of the spirit of life in Christ. And we begin to speak truth to those lies that come in. He begins to tell us we're not good enough. He begins to tell us we can't do it. We're not strong enough. We don't have what we need. The spirit of God's not, you know, alive in us. It hasn't finished this work. The work on the cross wasn't complete, basically, is what he's saying. And he begins to just speak these things into our brain, and we just begin to eat it up and devour it. And it's like, that is not what a mind fixed on Christ does. The mind fixed on Christ always answers with Christ. It's always setting his eyes on Christ. And so uh, just keep that in mind. I think I, I don't really think many people ever look at it this way, but I think that, you know, Romans 8 is a great passage for spiritual warfare because it's the mind fixed on the flesh is death. And what's the enemy constantly trying to do? How did the enemy tempt Jesus? He came in and he said, hey, um, why don't you turn that stone into some bread? Why did he do that? Because Jesus was hungry in his flesh. And he was trying to get Jesus to fix his mind on the flesh and then to act out of that place. But what did Jesus do? He kept things fixed on the spirit. Man shall not live by bread alone, but shall, but by every um, word that proceeds from the mouth of God. He brings it back to the word. And that's what we have to do. We have to keep our mind fixed on the spirit. Spend time alone in silence with the Lord. Spend time in study. Spend time in prayer. Spend time fasting. Spend time, you know, intentionally with him, worshiping him. And we'll begin to see changes. We will begin to see things, um, you know, that that have never been before in our life as reality for us. Um, and so I hope that this has helped you a little bit. Um, I hope that this is uh, challenging you and causing you to think about some things. And I've uh, been praying for you guys as you listen to this, that God would just use it and uh, you are uh, expanding and growing ever into the image of Jesus. Catch you next time.